a graduate of Asbury College and Asbury Theological Seminary, Dennis Kinlaw received his Ph.D. from Brandeis University. He was a lifelong student of God's Word and human culture, always looking for evidence of God's activity in human life. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me to again to John 17. And I want us to look again at the closing paragraph. I wish uh, we could read it enough times that it would be sealed in your memory and you couldn't forget it. Because it's the capstone on what Jesus was concerned about before he went to the cross. It's the end of his ministry and his last words. Beginning with verse 20. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, The world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And that's his will for you and for me. Before we pray, let me just point out a couple of things here. You notice that he's praying now not for his disciples, he's prayed for them, now he prays for us. And his prayer is that we shall be one. In the 20th century, that was taken by the ecumenical movement, and uh, their understanding of that was that we should become one denomination across the world. And so Geneva, the World Council of Churches, that was their ambition to have a world Christianity. I don't find an iota of that in here. He's talking about something infinitely deeper and something infinitely more significant. But why does he want us to be one? It is our oneness that enables the world to believe. But I want you to notice what he wants the world to believe. If you had caught me when I hadn't looked at that and you had asked me what he wanted the world to believe, I would have missed completely. But I want you to notice what he says. It may be more significant today than it has been to the church for 1,800 years. Notice what he wants us to believe is that the Father sent him. Isn't that interesting? Not a theological thing in any propositional way. He says, I want the world to believe that the Father Sent me. Now, of course, implied in that is all of the theology of historic orthodoxy. But it's that belief that he wants the world to come to know. Because, you see, if the world does believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the Father, and he has come to redeem the world, he is the doorway through which salvation comes to us. He is the Savior. And he is the doorway through which we get to God, the only God there is. And there is no other door. And so he gets down to the basic. He says, I want the world to believe, Father, that you sent me, and I'm here because you sent me. And if you believe that, the scripture indicates that is the key to salvation. And so why should you and I live in love with each other? And why should there be that oneness of agape between us, because the world isn't going to see it anywhere else. And if that love is in us and is manifest in us, the world's going to say, where did that come from? And we can tell them it came from the Son whom the Father sent, and it is the life 
which the Father, Son, and Spirit live together. And so he says, The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one. How? Not the unity that the World Council of Churches talked about, or the ecumenical movement talked about, but the kind of oneness that the Father and the Son have with each other, and the Father and the Son and the Spirit have with each other. That oneness is the oneness I'm supposed to have with you, and that oneness is the oneness you're supposed to have with me, and what is that oneness? Where I care more about you than I do me. And joy of joys, where you care more about me than you do yourself. And that is what he's talking about. And when that occurs, the world doesn't know what to do with it because it cannot be found anywhere else. Life centered in oneself cannot understand life centered in another. But the life of God is centered in another. And that passage says it as well as I think it can be said anywhere in the Word of God. So if you don't get anything else out of these hours together, I hope you will look at that and, and mull on that and pray over that because that's the oneness that we're supposed to have. The same oneness that the Father has with the Son, the Son has with the Father, and the two of them have with the Spirit and the Spirit has with them. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, what a joy it is to be possessors of your word. You've given it to us, and what a treasure it is. And the reason it's a treasure is because it tells us about you, and it lets us know you and understand you. And when we come to know you, our lives are transformed, and we know the joys for which you intended us, and we know the fulfillment that was your original purpose for us. Now, bless these today as they travel. And Lord, prepare the way back home for every person. And Lord, let their, each person have a sense that he or she does not go alone, that you go with him or her and with them, husband and wife or family or friend, as they travel back to their own local position. And Father, do something in our towns, our villages, our cities, our local churches that can turn this country back to you. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. We've been talking about knowing him better, knowing him more, and knowing him more intimately. We've spoken about the figures that the scripture uses to express that relationship. We began by talking about the fact that God wants us, to, Jesus said to his disciples, I don't call you servants anymore, I call you friends. God wants that kind of relationship with us. And we spoke about the kingdom. We are fellow citizens in the kingdom, but it's a different kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom that has a father that rules over it, a father that orchestrates it and a son that rules over it. And he does it through the power of the Spirit. And that son, as the father seeks children, that son seeks a spouse. So as you get these figures that we've run through in these first four, you get an increasing intimacy. Because there's no question but that the spouse has a more intimate relationship with his or her spouse than a parent does with a child or a child does with a parent. And it is much more exclusive. So uh, it is, in a sense, a much better representation of the relationship that we are to have with God, and particularly in Christ. But there is an even closer relationship that God wants with us than the relationship which is symbolized by marriage. And that is, he wants to come and indwell us. And linked with that, he wants that indwelling to be so permanent and so rich and so full that there is an identification that takes place between you and God and God and you, so that when you touch one, you've touched the other. Now, if you will notice the way the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one, Jesus says again and again, if you receive me, you get the Father. And Jesus wants it to be, the Father wants it to be, where if they receive you, they get the Father and the Son. And his way of getting to his world is through you and me. We are to be carriers of him. 
And so we speak about indwelling. Now, immediately when we think about that, most of us think of passages like Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, eat with him, be a part of his family. He will be a part of our family. We will be a part of his. And so we think of a painting like Holman Hunt, The Light of the World, with Christ standing, knocking at the door. That passage has been used thousands upon thousands of times to lead people to Christ. Just that simple word, if you'll open the door and invite him in, let him in, he'll come, because he's knocking. He's taking the initiative. Interestingly enough, of course, that verse was not given to a person who didn't know about Christ. It was given to a church that had lost his presence out of their life, and he wanted to get back into that church. And so he's knocking to get back in. So if today you've never received him, you ought to open. And if some way or other you've alienated him and driven him out of your life, you ought, as he knocks, to get back in, open again afresh to him, because uh, he wants to live within you. Or you think about that first chapter of John, where he speaks and says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. That's the negative of Revelation 3.20. In John 1, we're told he came to us and we received him not. Now that's even better pictured, what is at stake here, in the Eucharist. And I think there are many of us who've taken the Lord's Supper stacks of times and never realized really what is being said. So oftentimes we think of it as, ah, his blood was shed for the forgiveness of my sins, and so... This is a symbol of the fact that he has washed my sins away. But you will notice he also said, This is my body which is broken for you. Take, eat, feed on me within your heart. And what he is saying is, I want my life, my body and my blood or my life, representative of my life, I want my life inside you. It's not just that I want to wipe the slate clean and give you a new start. I want my life living in you. And you will notice that one of the key lines in the Gospel of John is that he came to bring life to us. Now, it's not a better life. It's a different kind of life. It is divine life that he wants to put within us to where God's life is being lived within us. He wants to live within us. It's interesting. John does not give an account of the Last Supper that we think of as the establishment of the Lord's Supper. But what he gives rather is the feeding of the 5,000 and puts it in that context. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give you the story of Thursday night, and they give you the story of the feeding of 5,000, but they don't tell it the way John does. When John tells it, you remember he fed them all one day, and they wanted to crown him king, so he disappears because they want to make a wrong kind of king out of him. And then when they find him a day later, they say, why did you run away from us? He says, because you ate the bread, but you never saw the sign. You never understood what I was saying. You see, I came to give you life. And if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you do not have my life within you. You see, there's supposed to be another who lives within me, another life that moves within, that works with my life and makes my life what it is supposed to be. He says, I am the bread of life. The bread, not the fish, but I am the bread of life. You eat the bread and the fish, and tomorrow you hunger, but you eat this bread, and what he wants is for it to be rising up within you eternally. And uh, that's what eternal life is, to have his life within us. And they said, you've given us bread. Moses gave the children of Israel manna in the wilderness, and he said, I'm a better bread than Moses ever had. And... uh Those who eat my flesh, this is from the sixth chapter, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. That's not a gift in the sense of now I've got it. It's his life being lived within me. And because of that, he can say, if they receive you, they get me. And when they get me, they get my father because he is dwelling and living within us. So you see, salvation is more than forgiveness or escape from judgment or escape from hell. 
It is to have the very life of God living within us. To be saved is to have his life within us. Now, Paul expresses this, interestingly enough, in a phrase that you've heard discussed somewhere, I'm sure, the phrase, in Christ, in Christo. You find it in his epistles. You look at Colossians 1.27, the opening chapter of, of Colossians, and you get this wonderful verse. He says, I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden throughout the ages and generations now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is this glorious mystery? Which is Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your hope of salvation is Christ in you. Not just a forgiveness of sins. It is that divine life, that divine person that lives within you. And you are very familiar with the passage in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and also gave himself to me. So his life is within us. John develops this with his disciples in the upper room. In chapter 15, in that vine and the branch passage, where he speaks and says, I am the true vine. Look with me for a moment at verses 4 following of, of chapter 15. He says, I'm the true vine, my father is the vine grower. He takes away the branches that don't bear fruit, the ones that do bear fruit. He prunes to make them bear more. You've been cleansed with the word spoken to you. And now he says, what, notice what he says, abide in me, dwell in me, live in me. As I live or abide or dwell in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them. You notice how reciprocal it is? It's not only that we receive him into our hearts, he receives us into his. He becomes part of our life. We become part of his life. And there is that reciprocity that is there. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withered. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide, dwell, live in my love. And that's where I'm supposed to live, in the love of God. And what is the love of God? It's God himself. It's his presence. I think that's the New Testament or John's equivalent to Genesis' walking. You see, in Genesis, you're to walk with God step by step in unbroken communion with him. Now, Jesus picks up and doesn't use the concept of walking, but he uses it of living and abiding to abide in him. Notice again in the passage that we read at the end of chapter 17. I hope you've noticed the preposition in Jesus' message to his disciples on that last night. I hope you've noticed the use of the preposition in, where he talks about he in us and we in him. I've thought about uh, preaching a sermon sometimes on it's all in the preposition in. I think I could make a case for that. Here the indwelling or inhabitation moves from inhabitation or indwelling to identification. He's in us and he's identified with us. We're in him and we are identified with him. Look at chapter 15. This is very interesting to me. 
Uh, it's a tough part of the gospel which most of us don't like to dwell on. But he knows what these disciples are going to say. He knows that some of them are going to die. Peter's going to be crucified for his sake because he believes in Jesus, because he believes the Father had sent his Son. Now, in verse 18 of chapter 15, if the world hates you, now why should the world hate Peter, James, and John? If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, because I've chosen you. Remember the word I said to you, servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name. Why? Because they do not know him who sent me. He can't get away from that, can he? The reason they're going to hate you is because they don't know the one who sent me. This is Christ speaking. The center of this whole gospel is the fact that God sent his son to redeem us. And so they hate him. We're identified with him. They will hate us if they hated him. In other words, They'll treat us the way they treated him, and they'll treat him the way they treat us. Now, do you notice the identification? Now, you will notice how we get mixed up with each other, God and us, his life within us and our lives within him. So that in 1320 he can say, and this is John's version of what you find in Matthew 10, when he's sending out the twelve, and in Luke 10, when he's sending out the seventy-two, he says, whoever receives one that I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. You know, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on that text. I'd be interested. Anybody here heard a sermon on that text? It's in Matthew. It's in Luke. It's in John, and it is a pivotal text. Whoever receives one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, that kind of identification is what made Jesus say to Paul on the Damascus Road, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul said, I'm just killing Christians. I'm not bothering you. He said, you see, you don't understand. They are me and I'm them. <laughs> now, that's not the best of English grammar to put it that way. But uh, there is an identification. And you will find that Jesus says on another occasion in one of his parables, the last week before the cross, whatever... You do for one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done for me. Now, that's a high privilege for you and me, but that's a high burden of responsibility for you and me, that we represent Christ in the world. In this, Christ is the model for us. You know, Paul picked this up and expressed it in connection with Jesus as the last Adam. That's a magnificent concept and very helpful. Because, you see, Paul understood that the first Adam, the first man, was the one that fouled everything up. And through one man, sin came into the world, and we've all been permeated with it since. And God says, how can I turn that around? Well, he said, I have to turn it around where the problem is. Do you know, for a long time I thought God could sit on his throne and straighten everything out. <laughs> After all, he's omniscient, isn't he? But you see, power can't save. Not power that saves you. It's not a decision on his part. It's the sacrifice of himself. And so uh, 
Paul came along and said, God needed another man because the problem has to be solved where it is. It's in us, so the problem's got to be solved in one of us. And so he sent a second man, and his name was Jesus, and he was a full man. He set aside his the perquisites of deity and lived a common life just like you and I live with the same resources that we have. He never used his miracle power for himself. He always used it for someone else. But he put aside the perquisites of his deity. He didn't put aside his deity. But he put aside the perquisites so he could live as one of us and the process of regeneration could be started for the redemption of the world in one of us, the one that God sent to us. Now, he's the person that is the model for you and for me. The human personhood of Jesus is the model for me. I had an assignment to do some research on a Seaman Wesley, and it was on the mind of Christ and how he used it. And so I went through, but you know, I typed in the phrase and what I wanted, and it began showing up. Every the in 14 volumes of John Wesley. Every of in 14 volumes in color of John Wesley. Then I began to learn enough to where I could get the phrase, the mind of Christ, or the mind which was in Christ Jesus. I found an interesting thing. The way Wesley would sum up an evangelistic sermon <laughs> was not to get people to simply make a decision. He said, it's so that you can be renewed in the image of him that created you, that you can have the mind of Christ, and you can walk as he walked. Isn't that interesting? That gospel was the thing that turned England inside out. A gospel that said you can be renewed in the image of the one that created, the image of God, in the image of Christ. You can have his mind and you can think the way he thinks and you can walk as he walks. Now you see... Uh, that's what he's getting at here. That we are to be in this world, we are to be the aroma of Christ so that when people smell us, they smell him. Isn't that interesting when your body, B.O. gets that way? But nevertheless, that's the biblical text. Read, read 2 Corinthians 2. Now, what about this one who is the model for me? The amazing thing is that he was incomplete in himself. Now, he had the power to heal. He had the power to cleanse lepers, give sight to the blind, to multiply bread, stop storms, exorcise devils, and raise the dead. But where did he get that power? Very interesting. He doesn't claim that it came from him. There are three very interesting prepositional phrases in the Gospel of John. Now, in the Greek, they're more obvious than they are in the English, because in the English, we develop a flow, and so we sort of cover some of these things up. But these three prepositional phrases are, out of himself, out of myself, or from myself. So I went through the Gospel of John checking every time Jesus used this phrase, out of myself. Some translations say, translate, on his own, or on my own, or some other modern equivalent of that thing. But the literal text is where he speaks and says what he did out of himself, from himself, and when he's speaking of himself in the third person, from himself in the third person. Now, look with me for a minute at 5.19. This is, this is too good not to get pinned down in your mind. 5.19, Jesus is responding to his enemies who want now to kill him because of the miracle that he's performed 
on the man, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, when he told him to take up his mat on Sunday. And so Jesus says to him, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing, my translation says, on his own. But the Greek says, the son, speaking of himself, can do nothing out of himself. The eternal Son of God can do nothing out of himself. But only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be astonished. But the first thing, he just healed a man at the pool, and he says, I didn't do it out of myself. Look with me at verse 30 in that same chapter. Jesus speaking in the same context. I can do nothing. My translation on my own, but what the text says is, I can do nothing out of myself. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's astounding how little Jesus does on his own. Now look at uh, the seventh chapter and verse 17 of the seventh chapter. He now is at the festival in Jerusalem, and they're challenging him about his teaching, and he is talking about who sent him to do that teaching. And so you get verse, begin with the middle of verse 16. My teaching is not mine, it's not my own but his who sent me. Anyone who resolves to do the will of God will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking out of myself. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, came from the Father. (laughs) These priceless parables he gave, they're not mine. They came from the Father. Now, Look at verse 28 in that same chapter. Then Jesus cried out as he was teaching in the temple, You know me, and you know where I am from. I have not come out of myself. But the one who sent me is true, and you do not know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Now, look at the 8th chapter, and verse 28 in the 8th chapter. Jesus again is in Jerusalem, the great light of the world passage. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will realize who I am, that I am He. And that I am is to be related to Moses, the word to Moses, tell him the I am sent you. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am and that I do nothing out of myself. But I speak these things as the Father instructed me, and the one who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do what is pleasing to him. Now look at verse 42 in that same chapter, and you find uh, this statement. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now I am here. I did not come from myself. Being here was not his idea. It was his father's idea. I did not come out of myself, but he sent me. Now look at 1249. And in 1249, you read very intriguing passage. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as a judge. For I have not spoken out of myself. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Now, I think what you've got there is nine occasions where he uses one of these prepositional phrases negatively. It was not his choice or his decision to come, his idea. His work are not done in his power. There is Father's 
the power the Father gives him through the Spirit, and his words which he teaches, these magnificent, are not his, they come from the Father. Now, now here, there is one place where he does something out of himself. Turn with me to the 10th chapter. In the great Good Shepherd passage. Let's begin and look at from 11 on. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because the hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. There's that oneness. One shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. Now, why does the Father love him? Look at that next phrase. Because, or clause, because I lay down my life in order to take it again, then no one takes it from me, but I lay it down out of myself. Now, isn't that interesting? Nine times he says, I don't do anything. My works are anything out of myself. The only thing I do out of myself is lay down my life for others. Now, uh, that's a fascinating picture of the inner heart of God. Because when you see one who lives for someone else and lives out of someone else, you've seen what takes place in the very nature of God himself. You see, he's given up the control of his life to his Father. Is this surrender? Do we lose when we surrender to the Father? Well, it's surrender, but you don't lose when you surrender. Here's where surrender is winning. Look at the blessing that's come to the world out of Christ's surrender of his own will to the Father. And look at the, what the blessings that have come to the world out of multitudes of lives across the history of the church where they gave up their own will, surrendered themselves to the will of the Father. This is the paradox of the gospel, that if you want to save your life, you lose it in saving. But if you lose your life for him, you gain it in the loss. And so you get that paradox. And the end result is, if you lose it, you don't work for you anymore. You work with him. Could I say that over again? Did you ever work for him? That's miserable. I love what Henry Blackaby says. Find out where he's at work and join in. Because you see, my life is not supposed to produce my thing any more than Jesus' life produced his thing. And if the eternal Son of God doesn't produce his thing, what am I doing trying to produce my thing? So, we're to produce his thing. What a difference it makes when you surrender. What difference does it make when you surrender? Let me tell you what happens if you don't surrender. Look at chapter 15 again. I'm the true vine, my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more. You've already been cleansed by the word I've spoken. Abide in me as I abide in you, just as the branch. The branch cannot bear fruit out of itself. (laughs) The branch cannot bear fruit out of itself. I'm a vine, branch in the vine. There is no fruit in me. The fruit comes from his life flowing through. I am the vine, you're the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Now get this line. Underline it, memorize it, get it where you can never forget it, and remind yourself of it daily. Because apart from me, 
you can do nothing. Now, you see, that's what Jesus is illustrating in his life. Apart from his Father, he does nothing. And apart from him, you and I can do nothing that will stand. Now, we can do things, but you know what it'll be like? Years ago, I remember a preacher who used an illustration about a kid who was on vacation at the seashore. And he went down to play. He didn't have anybody to play with, so he played alone. And that afternoon on the seashore, he built him an old medieval city with the wall around it and the moat around the wall and the drawbridges over it, and it was a work of art. And he had it just about the way he wanted it when suddenly he heard his brother's voice coming from up on the bluff saying, Buddy, it's time for supper. Mother's called. And he turned to look at his brother, and as he did, he had, he had forgotten how the tide was moving in. And when he looked back, a wave came that was bigger than the others and just swept across his medieval castle and city, and all of it was washed away just like that. Did you know that's the end of every life lived for itself? That's the end of every life lived for itself and in its own strength. And so Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You say, well, is God fair to do that? Well, let me show you one more verse. <laughs> Look at chapter 16. Verses 12 to 15. Jesus, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Did you notice my translation says he does not speak on his own? The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, does not speak out of himself. Now, if God does not operate, the various persons of the Godhead do not operate out of themselves. Why should I think that I can do that? You see, uh, that's the pattern. And what is it? It is a Godhead. Where you live in relation to another. You live in relation to God, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. It is to live with an eye single to the glory of God. It is to live with an undivided heart. And did you know that's possible? That's what the grace of Christ can do. He can single your heart on him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. What a waste of energy and of life to live with a divided heart. Because when we get him central, then our lives begin to bear fruit and to pay dividends. And the wonderful thing is, when your heart is not divided, the company you have. <laughs> because when your heart is not divided, there's an intimacy with him that you'll never know in any other way. And he's the best company there is. Just ask the three Hebrew children. <laughs> the fiery furnace was not even a problem when he was with them. And so that's what he wants in my life. He wants to be central. Could I give you a sort of a funny story to illustrate? I had the privilege of meeting number of years ago, a young Swede, his name was Bruce Olson, but when he was 19 years of age, when he was about 16, he got converted by reading the New Testament. He was a Lutheran. Father was a banker. He got interested in the New Testament. The second time through, Christ came to him, entered into his life. You know what the result was? He went to a bookstore and bought a world atlas. And then he used that world atlas to pray. And every day he'd open his world atlas and there'd be two pages of country. 
and he'd pray for each one of all the countries that were on those two pages. You know, I think that's a mark of the new birth. You know what I think is the greatest evidence of the new birth? You suddenly care more about somebody else than you do yourself. You're turned out instead of in. And so he started praying. And as he prayed through his atlas, month after month, there were two pages that began to impress themselves on him. And they moved him so deeply that he began to read about those countries and he read about the people who lived in those countries. One of those countries was Colombia and Venezuela. And so he read about them and found there were primitive Indians in Colombia that he knew did not know Christ. So when he was a sophomore in college, the end of his sophomore year, he liquidated everything he owned and he had enough money to buy a one-way ticket to Caracas, Venezuela. <laughs> so he landed in Caracas, Venezuela because he wanted to go and work with Indians. And so as he was coming through customs, you know, and they were checking him, they asked him uh, how long he intended to stay, and he said, I'd like to stay permanently. And they said, well, who's going to support you while you're here so you're not a public problem? And he said, God. And the Venezuelan official looked at him and said, could you give me his Venezuelan address? And Bruce said, no, I can't. The Venezuelan official said to him, son, that's very noble, but we're going to have to ship you back to the United States. So he was pinned up in the airport uh, waiting to be shipped the next plane back to the United States. So when the meal time came, they let him go into the restaurant to get some food. He sat down at an empty table. And as he sat, you know, wondering if he had missed God's leading, did I make a mistake? A Venezuelan gentleman came in, well-dressed, and said, Gringo? Bruce said, yes. He said, could I sit with you? Bruce said, oh, yes. So the guy sat down. He said, son, where are you from? He told him. He said, what are you doing down here? So he told him what the burden of his heart was. And the guy said, that's very noble. Could I help you? And Bruce said, well, who are you? Well, he said, I'm the personal secretary of Mr. Beckencourt, the president. That afternoon, Bruce had an appointment with Mr. Beckencourt. And the president permitted him to stay in Venezuela. He took a medical degree from the University of Venezuela. And then he headed for his Indians. There are too many parts of this, but let me get to the main thing found the Indians and began to live with them. And uh, he loved them, and they began to reciprocate. And so he began to ask them about their life, and he found out they had a king. And he said, uh, I'd like to meet your king. Well, they weren't about to take that gringo. He was about six foot two, blonde as could be, you know, with these little Indians, brown, and a foreigner, well, finally, they thought they could maybe trust him. So they said, yeah, we'll take you to our king. They had to travel through the mountains, jungle, rainforest, part of the way. And they came to a chasm that, as I remember, Bruce told me, it was about 200 feet deep. And there was water running below on huge rocks. And the only way across that chasm was a log that had fallen across, a huge log. And it was covered with moss and dripping wet and slick as could be. And so Bruce stared and said, is that the only way across? And they said, oh yes. They sensed his terror and they laughed at him. They said, take your shoes off. So he got barefooted, hung his shoes, as I remember the story about his neck, and they said, now we get in line. You put your hand on the shoulder of the Indian in front of you, and there'll be an Indian behind you who puts his hand on your shoulder. And you stare straight at the center of the back of the head of the Indian in front of you. And don't look anywhere else. said, now when you get to the log, if you will 
push your bare foot down, it's so full of water that it, your foot will push the water out, and when the water goes out, it'll create a vacuum, and it'll hold your foot in place. And then when you put the second foot forward, push, and you'll get your vacuum, and you'll be safe. Bruce told me that I was almost across when I started to look. And he said, the Indian saved me. Now, let me tell you what I've learned out of that story. If you get your eyes in the right place, your feet work right. Is that too deep? If you get your eyes single, your feet will work right, and it'll be safe. And it'll be amazing what you can look back and see that you've come through because you've had an eye single to the glory of God, an undivided heart. Is your eye single? Is your heart undivided? The only way you'll ever get it. He alone can do that because you'll protect your own interests. You know how this session ought to end? Some of us don't want to say, Lord, I want a single eye. I want an undivided heart. I want to keep my eyes on you. Because I know that's not only the safest way, that's the best way. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Now, Father, how good you've been to us. So let us have these days in this sacred place. Thank you that there are sacred places in life where we can meet the Holy One and you're here and you've tapped some of us on the shoulder and you've called us. You sent the tug in our heart. Lord, we can't put our hearts together or unite them. Only you can do that. But we give ourselves to you now and ask you to begin it today in this minute, in this hour. And as we go through the rest of this day, and as we travel, let us sense the work of your Spirit, renewing the very image of Christ within us, so that we can have the mind of Christ, and we can walk as Christ walked. Let your will for us be fulfilled, that we're one, that we have a oneness like the oneness that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, have with each other. And Lord, let that oneness be such. Our oneness with you, you and us and us and you, that people around us will see a difference and they can come to know that you, Father, have sent your Son and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.